1: If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's.
0: Whether you're a long-time listener or have just newly discovered the podcast, if you want to hear more about what's going on behind the scenes, then why not sign up for our brand new History Extra podcast newsletter. It's a fortnightly roundup that I'm putting together, highlighting some of my favourite recent episodes and giving you some tips on where you can read more on the subjects that you hear about. Just go to historyextra.com forward slash newsletters to sign up now. <laughs> and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's podcast, we have another lecture from our 2019 History Weekend event in Chester. Today's lecture comes from historian Helen Berry. Helen is the author of Orphans of Empire, The Fate of London's Foundlings. And in this talk she tells the remarkable story of George King, who was abandoned as a child in the 18th century and went on to an extraordinary life.
2: Thank you, David, and thanks to my friends at BBC History magazine for this invitation to participate And a warm thank you to you all for coming this evening and giving up hard-earned cash to come and hear me speak when you could be at home watching Antiques Roadshow, closing the curtains and hunkering down now that the clocks have gone back. Um, It's really heartening to see so many history fans and devotees in these difficult times. Uh, I think it reminds us of, of who we are and what it means to be human. So thank you for your time in coming. Um, As David kindly said, and some of you aren't even related to me, and I should say thank you to my family for being here this evening. Uh, And yeah, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about my book and to give you a sense of the back of the tapestry, if you like. Because when you write a book, uh, you often construct a story retrospectively about the research that's gone into it and make it appear very seamless. And of course, it's not like that. so I'll give you, some of you here might be interested in the history of foundlings, and some of you actually might be naval history buffs and interested in Trafalgar. And maybe it's like a Venn diagram that some of you have interest in both of those areas, or have never heard anything about, about the story of the foundling hospital. So in order to satisfy everyone, um, I'm going to give a little flavour of the book by just reading a short extract from the start, which really sets the scene. And I want to tell you a little bit of the story Uh, about how it really happened in relation to the research that went into it, because, of course, the book presents something of a narrative, uh, and the reality of doing historical research is somewhat messier, as you probably know. So I'll I'll just start by reading a little bit from uh, the opening section. The public opening of Trafalgar Square, one of London's most famous landmarks, on the 1st of May, 1844, was not a great success. Building work had begun as far back as the 1820s to clear and develop the site, which was formerly occupied by the royal Mews. The outlandishly extravagant monarch, George IV, had his horses moved to Buckingham Palace, leaving the premises empty, but progress on developing the site over the next two decades was slow. The leading architect of Regency style, John Nash, developed the south side of the square but he died in 1835 before the work was completed. It was then decided that the square would be named after the Battle of Trafalgar in commemoration of Admiral Lord Nelson's famous victory in October 1805. Plans for the new National Gallery on the north side were criticized for their lack of grandeur, whose architect William Wilkins also died before the work could be completed. There was something of a jinx, I think. By the 1840s, a new architect, Charles Barry, had been appointed and the scheme became more costly and grandiose with the addition of fountains, four granite plinths for sculptures and pedestals for lighting. An extra committee was formed to commission a monument to Nelson, who had died a hero's death at Trafalgar, but it took two years for them to decide how public subscriptions towards the cost of the monument could best be organised and managed. Eventually, an open competition was held, which was won by architect William Railton, who produced a design for a monumental column, famous Nelson's Column as we know it today, topped by a statue of Nelson and flanked by four bronze lions. Charles Barry publicly declared his dislike of the winning scheme, and there was further widespread condemnation. The famous Trafalgar Square Statues of Lions by Sir Edward Landseer were not finished until the 1860s. Further delay this time was caused by Lancia's insistence on sketching from a real lion's corpse obtained from London Zoo, which decomposed before the artist had time to finish the drawings. So amid this tortuously slow process, there was recognition that the surviving veterans of the Battle of Trafalgar should be honored. During the late spring and summer of 1844, the Times announced that a grand ceremony and dinner would be held at public expense for the men who had fought at Trafalgar and at Nelson's other great battles, Copenhagen, Cape St. Vincent, Tenerife and the Nile. Some months later, the newspaper reported that this plan had been canceled following complaints from local tradesmen that such an event would harm their businesses. The alternative suggestion was that a ceremony would be held at Greenwich Hospital, a naval school and charitable foundation which housed former seamen. The plan was to present each of the veterans who had served alongside Nelson with a medal and a gift of money and so some miles away from Trafalgar Square south of the River Thames in the grand painted hall at Greenwich Hospital approximately 350 elderly Trafalgar men former seamen who were the survivors of that famous battle, assembled on the morning of the 2nd of April, 1845. The boys of the Naval School marched on the parade ground in full regalia to the sound of a military band that played God Save the Queen. Inside, under the vaulted magnificence of the painted hall, the veterans were called forward in turn by name, many with missing limbs and wooden legs that marked their sacrifice for the nation. One by one, each was solemnly presented by the governor with a medal and gratuity of 10 shillings in tribute to his service. The medal bore Nelson's effigy and an inscription of the Admiral's famous message signaled to his men on the Battle of Trafalgar. Can anyone, does anyone know what that message was? Are you all familiar with it? Yes, England expects every man will do his duty. On the reverse, there was an engraving of the Nelson Pillar, as it was known at the time, known to us today, of course, as Nelson's Column, with the words, to commemorate the opening of the Nelson Testimonial, Trafalgar Square, 21st of October, 1844. Media attention that day was focused on the heroic deeds of Admiral the Right Honorable Sir Robert Stopford, Governor of of Greenwich Hospital, the 76-year-old former naval commander who had served with Nelson. And it was reported in the Times he had almost seen action at Trafalgar. (laughs) (laughs) So isn't it interesting the way that posterity looks at the history of of great men very often, and that was certainly the focus of the Times uh, on that particular occasion at the upper end of the hall of Greenwich hospital with the governor lieutenant general uh, sorry lieutenant governor of officers and their friends seated together with assembled dignitaries behind a high table flanked by the union jack and flags of the admiralty so you can picture that all the uh, officers uh, seated at one end of the hall in all their finery but if we look around the hall that day let's look again at the men who were present Another somewhat less celebrated invitee that day was George King, a former ordinary seaman, now nearly 60 years of age. Unlike many of the dignitaries who were present, he had actually taken part in the Battle of Trafalgar when he was just 18 years old. George King was remarkable in that, unlike many of the rank and file sailors below decks, he was able to read and write and so compiled his own arresting account of his experience of active service. So I hope to read a little of that to you in a moment. On that fateful day, he was eyewitness to a great slaughter at Trafalgar, but extraordinarily by his own account, he never received a wound. Now here is the link that I'm making in my book. The truth was that George King had been fighting to survive against the odds all of his life for as an infant he had been given up to be raised in the London Foundling Hospital. His is the only detailed autobiography by a Foundling child born and raised in the 18th century, and as such provides some of the few surviving clues as what it was like to have been brought up in an institution founded for orphaned and abandoned children over 250 years ago. George was an orphan of empire, someone whose parents had died or who had abandoned him, thereby effectively orphaning him, uh, since very few children left at the Foundling Hospital were ever reunited with their birth families. George's precarious life as a pauper infant was saved for the nation via a publicly sponsored charity, the Foundling Hospital, whose main purpose was to boost the workforce at home and manpower for the armed forces abroad in order to further Britain's imperial mission. Almost no one at the time, nor subsequently knew of George King's story, nor his heroic service to his country. He surpassed expectations of the kind of modest, useful life that a Foundling Hospital supporters had planned for the poor children in their care by fighting at Trafalgar, one of the most iconic battles in British history. So his remarkable story, is told for the first time in my book. And I found this uh, remarkable document, George King's autobiography, by chance. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about that in a moment. How many of you have visited the Foundling Museum in London? Have you? Oh, good, good number of you. So nothing today survives of the original building that was the Foundling Hospital, uh, except for a small colonnade. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history. And if it's something that's already quite familiar to you, then, then bear with me. This man, Captain Thomas Coram, seen here in his famous portrait by William Hogarth, was a kind of salty sea captain. Uh, He had earned the honorary title of captain uh, working in the royal shipyards in the American colonies. So he was familiar with the shipyards in Boston and Massachusetts. And he traveled all over the American colonies in the early part of the 1700s. He was very interested. He had an improving temperament, so he was always trying to make things better. And he came up with all kinds of schemes to improve, for example, the supply of tar to the British Navy to make the hulls of ships watertight. And he was constantly petitioning uh, important people with his great plans and schemes. And he became... um, Sometimes a thorn in their side, but sometimes he was also called upon by people to serve on committees that actually ended up being quite influential. And he gained a reputation as a man who could sort out large scale problems to do with Britain's imperial project. In fact, he was one of the founder members of the committee that set up the modern state of Georgia. So if there are any Americans present in the room, Coram actually made quite a contribution to the modern map of today's United States. Now, legend has it that when he returned to London in the 1720s from the New World, he used to commute on foot from Rotherhithe in the east end of London on the, in the Isle of Dogs and walk into the city to the Admiralty office, the same office where Samuel Pepys, the famous diarist, used to work. And legend has it that one day he was walking to work and he saw the corpse of an abandoned infant by the roadside. And he was so shocked at this he himself had an American wife but he had no children and he had great compassion for the plight of uh, poor and starving infants and young children on the streets of London. I've got colleagues who doubt whether that actually happened but that's historians for you Um, they're always quite skeptical about stories like that. What is certainly true is that the problem of infant and child poverty was quickly becoming out of control in London, which was rapidly growing and becoming Europe's first modern metropolis. Now, most of us, myself included, usually pass by. We get used to seeing terrible things on on the streets of our towns and cities, and we generally hope that someone else is organizing to do something about it. Not so Thomas Coram. He decided he couldn't let this pass. So he started writing letters and petitioning important people and saying, We have to do something about it. We have to set up orphanages uh, and we have to set up institutions that will help these uh, infants and young children to survive. But of course, what he needed was money. And the problem was that a lot of this was associated with illegitimacy because the infants who were abandoned or who had, uh, uh, couldn't be raised by their parents were the poor offspring. Uh, Of unmarried mothers. So a lot of famous dignitaries didn't want to have anything to do with it because they were worried about encouraging sin in particular. You know, if people could put their infants into homes, perhaps that would encourage uh, sexual sin and vice. Um, So Thomas Coram found it very difficult. He He took 20 years, 20 years of campaigning before he raised enough money to open the Foundling Hospital. And the key to his success was that he gave up on the powerful men and he started petitioning their wives instead. And respectable ladies like this woman, Charlotte Finch, the Duchess of Somerset, started to lobby their husbands and became patrons in their own right of this cause. Right up through the aristocracy to Queen Caroline herself, wife of George II. So eventually, after much campaigning, and he was really in his late 60s, by the time he got anywhere with this campaign, Thomas Coram raised enough money to have this building uh, built uh, on land in Bloomsbury, quite near um, Russell Square Tube Station, if you know that part of London, uh, Lambs Conduit Fields, that sort of area, Coram's Field as it's called today. Um, So it was a monumental exercise in fundraising and lobbying. The first... uh, Infants were taken into a different uh, institution, but in 1741, the doors of this hospital opened. Hospital in the sense of a place of hospitality. Um, Some sick children were admitted, but it was really to do with a place of safety where you could bring children. Now, the, the scale of this enterprise was really incredibly ambitious, but there was rationing like modern uh, welfare services today they couldn't take in every single abandoned child so very quickly they had to set up a system of rationing by ballot and you may have heard of this but this was the way that they did it it was under cover of darkness and they advertised in newspapers that any woman wishing to give up her baby to enter the hospital was to come and present themselves in the grand council room of the founding hospital where she would step forward, and you see this lady here at the front. She would step forward and she would draw a ball out of a bag. Now, if she drew a black ball, she would be turned away. If she drew a white ball, her baby would be taken away and admitted to the hospital. So, the astonishing piteousness of this scene, you could imagine, it was terribly distressing for the woman to. Draw a black ball because she had no means of providing for her child but perhaps it was almost as bad even worse if she drew a white ball because that meant the moment of separation from her child. It was a moment of great pity and pathos. It was well written about in the newspapers. A lot of people wrote about this terrible scene um, and it also was something that other people of fashion, particularly people who donated money to the hospital, that's this little group here, they would come and watch the spectacle. Uh, and engage in that sort of sensitive uh, culture of sensibility and the pathos of the scene. I think we would find that rather uh, distasteful today. But it was very much part of the public ethos of the hospital that all of this was visible. So if a woman drew the white ball and the baby was taken away by the matron, Uh, And that actually is the interior. If you visit the family museum, you can see the very room uh, in which this took place. Although it's not in the original building, it's the same interior uh, as that particular scene would have happened. And what happened next was that the infant was, uh, his or her clothes were removed. An equal number of boys and girls were taken into the hospital over time. And... uh, the infant would be inspected to make sure it was healthy. And to begin with, they only took in infants under the age of five months. So a nurse would make a judgment about how old the baby was. If it was found to be healthy, then the really quite industrial process of putting the baby through this system began. And what happened was they made a note. There's a printed document. These are the so-called billet books where they listed what the child looked like with a description they snipped off a little piece of cloth or sometimes they kept a whole part of the garment that the child was wearing as an identifying token. It was one of the ways which um, they thought later on could be used if the mother ever returned to claim the child. She could describe what it was wearing when it was admitted and it would be one way of authenticating that this was indeed the child's mother. So um, it actually has resulted in the billet books of the foundling hospital being the richest collection of 18th century textiles that now survives from the poorest kind of worsteds and woolens that working people would have worn to some incredibly colorful silks and expensive materials and they're all there preserved in beautiful color because they've never been exposed to the light so the baby was described it was taken away Sometimes there was a letter and over time that became more routine that a mother would also leave a letter explaining how this child came to be born, what the circumstances were and what the name of the child was that they'd been given prior to admission at the hospital. But whatever name they were given, it didn't matter. Every child was rebaptized with a new name and that was symbolic of their new life in the hospital. Now, we're all quite familiar with the idea of being given serial numbers, sort of the NHS numbers that we all have, national insurance numbers. The hospital's bureaucracy was incredibly uh, efficient, and all the babies were given uh, identifying numbers. And all of this was entered into ledgers, including descriptions uh, of whatever tokens were left with the child. Sometimes it was clothing, but sometimes these small items were left. And again, these were identifiers. Um, that's actually, and it, this is an amazing insight into the sort of material life of poor people in 18th-century London. That fish there, and guesses what that little fish might be. A and this little fish, little white fish. Um, sorry, the oh, dot came. isn't appearing very well. <coughs> it's a gambling token. It would have been made of ivory. Um, it was quite common for lovers to break a coin. So this was a sign of. Um, I mean, Click is not working right, The the broken half coin, the mother would have kept a half and she gave up another half with the infant, a small denominational coin. Sometimes you get higher status items like little silk embroidered purses, um, but it's a very touching insight into just what people owned and what they were willing to give up with their babies. Sometimes it was nothing more than a hazelnut, but all of these were carefully logged away with the documentation that described what the child was wearing and what it looked like. And occasionally you get these little touching um, pieces of of text as well. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord careth for me. So some uh, poor mother has written that and threaded that on a ribbon and attached it to the infant that she gave up. So the scale of this enterprise was phenomenal and it took remarkably skillful And complicated bureaucratic systems in order to keep all this operation going. Uh, To give you some idea, 18,000 babies passed through the doors of the London Foundling Hospital by the year 1800. So, in the first uh, just under a century of its operation, 18,000 babies were processed in this way. So, you've got some sense of the scale of it. And very, very able uh, men were involved in the project, uh, including. Arthur Onslow, predecessor to John Burko, order, order, Arthur Onslow, incredibly skillful man. He was the first Speaker of the House of Commons who could memorise all the MPs' names. So he had a phenomenal brain for organisation. And Richard Mead, who was one of the pioneers of the smallpox vaccination, he was the hospital's, uh, he was a governor and he was also um, uh, very interested in uh, trying to help foundlings avoid the terrible disease of smallpox through um, uh, inoculation. So many, there were several hundred governors, but actually the, uh, the, the council was really stuffed full of dignitaries, dukes and lords, who didn't really have much to, day, to do with the day-to-day working. They relied on men like this who were professionals to run it uh, on a regular basis. Now, some of you may know the Foundling Museum today has an amazing art collection And one of the ways that they raised money for the hospital was to have people paying to view incredible artworks that were donated uh, to the charity by people like William Hogarth. Something that is often missed is that many of these paintings depict naval battles. And and one of the things that's worth thinking about is the way in which this whole enterprise was at a time of (laughs) British imperial expansion, And the original rationale for setting up the hospital for the boys in particular was to provide sailors to go to sea and help with Britain's uh, naval expansion and colonial uh, safeguarding and the merchant navy and so on and so forth. You see this in the collection, although people often overlook this aspect of the collection today. Um, They also were endowed with incredible musical gifts and the chapel was the place where Handel's Messiah was performed. Handel was a great patron of the founding hospital and in fact the modern Gerard Coke collection at the founding museum has the original manuscript of the Messiah. So there was very very close links between the musical and concert life of 18th century London and this particular charity. So what Hogarth is drawing here, what he's depicting, is the imagined future of the children of the Foundling Hospital, so he's showing uh, babies being given up to a figure who looks a bit like Moses, but he also looks a bit like Thomas Coram, uh, and you have these children who are returning to the Foundling Hospital. These little boys and girls are about four or five, six years old, and that was the age at which they came back to the hospital to receive an education. When they were babies and they were whisked away and processed and given their new names they were immediately sent to the countryside to be wet nursed which means that they were breastfed by usually farmers wives and cottagers wives for money and these nurses were given a bonus if they kept the baby alive for more than a year um, so that was a whole another whole aspect of the enterprise and local inspectors in uh, the home counties in particular would go inspecting and making sure that the babies were being looked after. And if they survived, when they reached the age of five, they were sent back to London.
3: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: So what you see here are the little boys and girls. There's a little boy here who's being kissed goodbye by his wet nurse But you see they were already carrying the tools of their future trades. So we have plumb lines and mallets, these are symbolizing the little boys going into honest trades of builders and farmers and agricultural workers. The little girls here they've got brooms and aprons on because they're going to go into service, they're going to be servants. Little girl here with her spinning wheel. So this is about industrious labor for the urban poor who are going to be honest citizens when they grow up and their education will reflect that. So this isn't about finding out the talents and what they're good at, it's about suiting them for certain kinds of of manual and semi-skilled labour. You might also be able to see the ships in the background and that is a hint that some of this is about actually sending some of the boys overseas to be sailors and so forth. Now that story that I've told so far might be fairly well known to some of you if you've ever looked at the history of the Foundling Hospital. But what is new, sorry, this is really impossible to read, and my eyesight isn't great, but this this nearly did for me. This is the apprenticeship uh, register of the London Foundling Hospital. And it was one of the main documents that I looked at when I was writing my book, and I had a team of people who were helping me research it because we wanted to create a database that would analyse exactly where these children went and what occupations they went into. Now there's 411 pages of this document and nearly 6,000 apprenticeships. Very sadly two-thirds of those 18,000 babies died before they reached uh, the age at which they could be apprenticed. So only around 6,000 survived before the year 1800. So shockingly high mortality rates. A lot of them simply died. Not incomparable with workhouses at the time. Slightly better, better survival rates than some workhouses. So that's a shockingly high statistic about how many died. About 6,000 survived and they all lived to an age where they were old enough to be apprenticed. So they received an entry in this apprenticeship book and it tells us their name, their number, the name of the master or mistress who took them, the parish they were sent to and sometimes it gives us information about the occupation of the master or mistress and sometimes it goes into detail about what the founding child was intended to do but sometimes we have to infer that by the occupation of the master or the mistress. So this is where we get into a bit of detail, bear with me and we'll get back to George King shortly we then mapped where they were sent. And for a time, the system of rationing that we mentioned at the start with the black ball and the white ball being drawn out of the bag, that was given up because Parliament stepped in. And the reason reason that the Foundling Hospital started to become a much bigger enterprise from uh, the late 1750s onwards was that war broke out. And it became known as the first global war, the so-called Seven Years' War in retrospect, um, involved great global conflict where really um, the British and the French became involved in struggles over colonial territory. And the British government at Westminster became so concerned that they needed more men than they had to staff their ships that they started ploughing money, loads of money, hundreds of millions of pounds in today's uh, value, into the family hospital, on condition that they take any child of any age uh, and in any condition. And the whole enterprise started to become bigger and bigger and bigger, so that they set up six branch hospitals around the country. I'm moving here into the 1760s, when the children reached about the age of uh, 10, 11, when they were old enough to be apprenticed. And those of you whose eyesight is extremely good might notice, that there was a branch hospital right here in Chester. So it wasn't the biggest branch hospital. The biggest one, which you can see with a cluster of blue dots here, was Ackworth in Yorkshire. So these branch hospitals brokered the apprenticeships. They arranged through a network of local inspectors to send children out into local areas to be apprenticed, uh, to local people in various types of industry, in various kinds of uh, agricultural labour. And if you're interested in the data, there's a little bit about it in the book. The long and the short of it is you remember the governors imagined the boys would be sent off to sea to go into ships? Very, very few of them did. Fewer than 200 were sent as apprentices to mariners. Where did they actually end up? That's a bit of a clue. Industry. They ended up in industry and they also ended up working on the land. And The vast majority of um, uh, primary sector workers, meaning working in agriculture, were in Yorkshire. And a lot of these boys went off to pick stones, scare crows. I think, I think my friend in the front row worked out why they needed all this child labour to work on the fields because so many young people in a lot of rural areas were upping sticks and leaving to go and work in towns and in factories. So quite a lot of foundling labour went into backfilling some of the things that were happening because of the Industrial Revolution. And because I was coming here tonight, I looked at the register to see what the foundlings who came to Chester were doing. And that's pretty interesting, actually. Some of them were working in the houses of the gentry. as as servants boys and girls some of them were working um, in in terms of um, helping out with farm labor in in Cheshire in the surrounding areas and the parishes one of them went to work for a gunpowder manufacturer in Chester Uh, I didn't find any working in the salt industries I was expecting a bit of that but there was none of that so it very often depended on who the inspectors knew about where these children went to go and work But it it was a real surprise to me that more of them didn't go to sea and I think that really presents the big picture that puts into context some of the things that I just want to tell you about briefly at the end. Some poor orphans did go to sea but that was thanks to this man Jonas Hanway and he was a governor of the founding hospital and he realized that really the most efficient thing to do was to wait till a lad grew up and proved to be healthy and then give him a suit of clothing uh, and, and that was how the Marine Society helped staff uh, the British Navy. So Jonas Hanway looked at a different way of doing it. Now, the question that we will all want to know about is what about these foundling voices? What about the stories of these children themselves? Now, have you heard of Hetty Feather? Jacqueline Wilson? Read some Hetty Feather? Yeah. So uh, my niece is Lucy and Ella here in the audience. They're not much older than many of the children that I'm talking about. You imagine a ten or eleven-year-old being apprenticed and sent out into the world to make their own living and find their own way. I think Jacqueline Wilson has done a great job of imagining, imagining what their life stories would have been like from their point of view. But if you're looking that far back to the era that I'm talking about, very, very difficult to piece together from the original archive. It gets easier as you move into the later Victorian period. (laughs) There you are. And Dickens is in the book because Dickens liked hanging out at the gates of the Foundling Hospital and meeting some of the children who, who had actually been raised there. But we're moving into you know, the, a century after the Foundling Hospital started. So I wanted to do all I could to piece together the story of these founding children from their perspective. But it's a terribly frustrating enterprise because, of course, many of them had very limited literacy skills. They didn't write their own records of their lives. This is often the kind of fragment that you get in the Foundling Archive, which is in the London Metropolitan Archives. And this is where we get into the back of the tapestry. (laughs) The legwork that has to go into the research to find out about their lives is very, very uh, time consuming. The shelving that houses the archive for the London Foundling Hospital is the equivalent I worked out of 17 double-decker buses end to end. Huge, huge archive and if you're looking for foundling voices this is often all you get. Rebecca Potter, foundling number 16,078, that was the number she was given, she was received into the hospital the 16th of March 1760 and apprenticed the 14th of June 1769, to William Hayes of Moore's Yard, Old Fish Street, in the parish of St. Nicholas. And he was a tailor in London. And she was to be employed uh, in household business. So this young woman, Rebecca Potter, became a servant girl. And this is a little scrap of paper which pays attention and noticed her presence. And it recorded that she attended the general committee of the founding hospital, which would have been stuffed with titled gentlemen. You could imagine that very smart, fancy room. They would have been sitting there, and she turned up, not unlike looking like Hetty Feather, actually. And it would have been a terrifying experience for this young woman. She turned up boldly on the 16th of December, 1786, and get this, and she requests their indulgence to acquaint her What name she was received with. This young girl, this servant girl, wants to know the name that her mother gave her before she came to the hospital. The name that the hospital gave her isn't enough for her. She wants to know about her own identity. Isn't that intriguing? And that's all there is. There's a whole story there. But you'll never find out anything more about her unless perhaps she committed a crime or went into a workhouse, but it's still not enough somehow about their stories. So I didn't know whether I was going to get any further than that sort of evidence. And then one day I went to the founding museum and there was a glass case and there was this. It's only about this big, looks like a little book, very faint handwriting and squirrelled away in a corner of this case. It said this was the unpublished autobiography of George King, seaman of Greenwich Hospital. And it said it was 19th century. But I asked them about it, my friends at the Founding Museum, and they said, oh, yes, we have a, someone's typed that up. We'll we'll give you a copy of it. I wasn't allowed to look at it uh, because it was too fragile. And in fact, one of the things that they've done, which is wonderful, is that they've had it uh, uh, restored, they've made it safe and put it on acid-free paper so that it will be preserved now for the future because its historical importance has now been recognised. The unknown person who typed it up was very dismissive about it and said it was of limited interest because this was an unknown seaman and he was mostly drunk. (laughs) But in between his episodes of binge drinking, and yes, there is quite a lot of that in there as well, that's this incredible story. Now, George King was taken in as a baby. He was born around June 1787. He was admitted to the hospital in November 1787. And I have been able to find out something that he never knew. And I find that very uncomfortable. He never knew the name of his birth mother. But I do now, and you all do now. It was Mary Miller. And there is a letter in the archive where she writes and explains that she was seduced by a young man who ran away and left her. And the honesty of this young woman is testified by the local vicar who says that she was a victim and blah, blah, blah. So George never knew the name of his mother, but we all do now. And it was there in the archive all along. He was sent out to Hemel Hempstead to a nurse who was very kind to him. And in the book, you can read about his account of his childhood and his happy uh, early memories before the age of five. And one day he was told by the woman he called his mother that he was being Sent away to school. And she took him up to London, gave him gingerbread on the journey. He makes out it was a great adventure, but she took him to the gates and she left him there, and he never saw her again. So it's this most incredible first hand account of what it was like, the only first hand account we have by a foundling born in the 18th century, what it was like to be raised in the founding hospital. He talks about his adventures, his best friend Henry Rivington. The visit of George III, who marched his troops around the parade ground, and he found some gunpowder and played with it, and it blew his eyebrows off. Um, and he's destined to become a confectioner's apprentice. So he's sent out to go and make sweets in a sweet shop, which you think would be a great job, but he can't resist the temptation of stealing some of the sweets, which is very bad for his conscience. And he gets into fights with the other apprentices. So he decides he's going to run away to see. Now, we've seen now how unusual that was that very few boys did this. And generally, they only did it if they got into trouble or they were rebellious. And Sometimes they were sent away to sea as a punishment. But he had a friend who said, come on, this is going to be a great adventure. So he ran away from his master, which was a terrible thing to do. And it's all there in the archive, his own account of this. He's very quickly press ganged. So he goes to Chatham. He's seized by a group of men and he's taken on board a ship called the Polyphemus, which, as it happened, ended up with Admiral Lord Nelson's fleet. (laughs) So I do hope, if you would like to read his first-hand account of his life, and at the age of 18, how he came to be at Trafalgar and his experience on that day. So I will leave you just with a little snippet, because time is getting on, but these are in part, my words and summarizing George's, but there are some direct quotations from the diary. As part of Nelson's decoy squadron, George King and the rest of the crew of Polyphemus set sail under the command of Captain Robert Redmill and proceeded to the gut of Gibraltar. There they waited. During the night of the 20th to 21st of October 1805, George recalled overhearing a conversation. Between Admiral Lord Nelson himself and his ship's captain. Quote At about 10 minutes to 12, we drifted alongside the commander in chief when we were hailed by his lordship, who accosted us thus, What ship? The captain answered Polyphemus. When his lordship said, Redmill, I suppose we shall have a warm day tomorrow. And the captain answered, I hope so, my lord. End quote. George helped keep watch until 4am and barely had time to return to his hammock when the signal was made that the French fleet was in sight. We were entirely fit for action, he recalled, and the British fleet was soon in a two-line formation, the first time that such a manoeuvre had been tried. At eight o'clock, George recalled, quote, we pipped the breakfast, it being Monday Banyan Day. Pipes. We piped the breakfast. Yeah. The most part ate their dinner for breakfast and each man was served, each man before battle was served, half a pint of wine. We had three butts of water on the lower deck and three on the main deck with the heads knocked in, presumably so they could get the water out more easily in the heat of battle. Our bread bags with our other provisions were stowed in the launch on the boons. The officers were encouraged by their commander-in-chief to urge their men to behave gallantly and three hurrahs were given by the ship's company. George had a moment to notice the mild wind, smooth sea and the beautiful view of the combined fleets which had formed a crescent and the centre of the enemy's line which was the Spanish Admiral, his flag flying on board the Santissima Trinidad. End quote. The British fleet had 27 ships up against the combined fleets 33. Nelson issued a plan of attack. So you get this incredible mixture of George seeing this panoramic view of the assembled ships and then his experience of battle and how he uh, is part of a ship that is running alongside the stern of a Spanish three-decker and a French French 80 and pouring a few broadsides into the stern of one and the bow of the other. The English ships were nimble with superior gunnery uh, tactics the larboard of the Polyphemus, his ship, was shot off, but this mid- mishap did not present her from running under a French ship and a Spanish ship, pouring broadside ammunition into each. Quote from George, there not being sufficient wind to carry away the smoke, we could hardly see the ships we were engaging. And it really, uh, his speaking voice um, really comes through here. And you get the sense of what life was like for him below decks. <coughs> They're not being sufficient. uh, Sorry. It was a warm, sultry day, says George. We stripped ourselves to trousers only and blazed away for three hours, I being quartered at the second gun on the forecastle. By 4 p.m., shrouded in a pall of smoke, the men could make out that the French ship Akil was on fire. Peering over the hammock netting that covered the larboard, George could see, as the smoke cleared, that a number of ships, both of us and the enemy, totally dismasted and all appeared to be in confusion so about 200 french sailors were taken on board as prisoners onto uh, george's ship and just as this happened the french ship achille blew up with a tremendous explosion burying all the slain and wounded and then george just happens to mention in his diary almost in passing quote the commander in chief being slain admiral collingwood shifted his flag from the royal sovereign uh, into the frigate and at this time It it commenced to blow a fresh breeze. So almost in passing, he mentions that Nelson is slain, and eventually Nelson's body is brought on board to George's ship, and they have the honour of carrying the body back to Gibraltar. It's a hair-raising eyewitness account of life below decks and an ordinary seaman's experience of that day now he's writing it in retrospect. He was only 18 when he was in that battle and he's writing it when he's in his 40s in retrospect but it was clearly an absolutely monumental day and I don't think I want to gloss over some of the carnage that he witnessed in his life and his career. He spent uh, over 30 years eventually both of the Royal Navy and eventually the, the Merchant Navy and it took him all over the globe so you can certainly read about that if you're interested. I'll go into some detail about his career afterwards including Ending up in the Carolinas and witnessing for himself enslaved Africans working on rice plantations. Uh, He very nearly settles there, but he ends up in London. Uh, And spoiler alert, I won't tell you the very end, (laughs) but it, it is a resolution. And this is where I wanted to just round up by saying historians are very good at writing stories that seem to have a resolution, I think, sometimes. And my impulse really. You know, from the bare bones of the facts of his admission, this is the admission to the Foundling Hospital, the register that records how Mary Miller, his mother, gave up her son at five months. George King was his name. His serial number is 18,053, the number of infants that have been admitted. He was the 18,000th and 53rd. Just those bare facts don't give you that sense of the fact that this was a person with their own inner life and incredible bravery and struggles. Eyewitness to that iconic battle. This picture is in the Foundling Museum collection, and there was a foundling below decks, and he wasn't the only one. So if you want to find out more about that, there's going to be an exhibition next year, which I'm curating with my friends at the Foundling Museum, and we hope that that will draw together some of these big themes and how it looked from the Foundling's perspective. And there's the final uh, slight spoiler alert, which is that he there is a slightly happy ending for him. This is These are the, the pensioners of Greenwich Hospital, these elderly um, seamen who were given refuge there. Uh, and there's a long story about how he ends up in there, but I won't tell you more about that now. But I do hope you found that interesting. You might be familiar with the Quorum's Fields and the modern charity Quorum, which still does amazing work today. It's the biggest adoption agency in the country it's bigger than Bernardo's, and they're able to run their enterprise without raising money through shops or through charitable fundraising because they have money from rents they still own the land that the original foundling hospital was built on and it's now prime central London real estate so they they have a lot of income and they're able to do fantastic work through adoptions Uh, so you can see Coram's statue there today. Thank you so much for listening. I'd be very happy to take questions.
0: That was Helen Berry. Her book, Orphans of Empire, The Fate of London's Foundlings, is on sale now, published by Oxford University Press. We're not currently holding live events, but we are running a series of fortnightly virtual lectures on various different historical topics. You can find out more about them on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for an episode on everything you wanted to know about the Glorious Revolution.